Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Welcome listeners. I am so happy you're tuning in today, and I am very honored to introduce you to Danielle Ellis. Danielle is an ambassador for the Real Bread Campaign and a judge for the World Bread Awards. Today, Danielle shares how a series of influences, a childhood love of French holidays, a summer stint as an au pair, a mad Scotsman, and a tough pastry teacher all came together to convince Danielle to leave a decades-long career in marketing and enroll in a French school for baking. Danielle completed the 670-hour course. Yes, you heard that right, 670 hours. In addition, Danielle completed many months of work experience, including an internship at a bakery that used no electrically powered equipment at all, not even to mix 50-pound batches of dough. Today, as an expert on baking, scaling, marketing, and running a bakery, Danielle teaches classes to both novice and professional bakers. Welcome, Danielle. Well, I have to tell you, I'm just thrilled to be talking to you today for two reasons. One, because I feel, and of course, it's so easy to say this from the outside, right? Like, I feel that you've lived this life that has been led by curiosity, and you have gone from interest to interest and excelled at all of them. (laughs) And two, because I'm terrible at making bread. And there's a lot of things you can fake, but you can't fake making bread. If you don't know how to bake it, you don't know how to bake it. (laughs) And thinking about your your wonderful talk with Ermine, Mm. they really don't help on Bake Off because they never give people enough time to make proper bread. (laughs) Well, yes. I think that that's a disadvantage across the board. I saw someone comment, a previous winner comment on the disaster that was brownies this season. And I thought, well, that's because the British palate is so different than the American palate. We like things gooey and basically raw and completely (laughs) sickeningly sweet. But this winner said, no, they thought it came down to time. So (laughs) good. (laughs) So I'm curious, do you feel, and we'll jump into the questions right after this, do you feel that my assessment of your life is at all accurate, that it has just been this life led by curiosity from one Um, (laughs) uh, achievement and success to another? (laughs) But but definitely not planned. I I had Mm. a very good friend who said to me when she was, I think, 25, Mm. by the time I'm 40, I will have done this, 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 and this. And she did it. But me, no. <laughs> Interesting. Never. No, I, mean, I I guess my passions, one for France mm. and two for food, have kept me sane and kept me going all the way through. That's led the way. Yes. Well, it's, it's, it is an interesting distinction is that you haven't been led by a thirst for achievement as much as, again, passion and yeah. And maybe curiosity too, but not, but also fearlessness. There must be an element of fearlessness there mixed in. Oh, yeah, a bit, yes. Yeah, okay. So let's so let's talk about this because I'm so excited, like I said, to talk to you. I'm excited for my listeners to hear and to learn from you. And I really struggled. I sat here and, you know, looked at a blank screen for about five minutes trying to decide where to start. <laughs> Because there's so much to ask you about your life. And I thought we would just start with where you are now, which is you are, you teach bread making classes, you judge the world bread competition, and we'll start with this one. You are a real bread campaign ambassador. So what is a real bread campaign ambassador? Why do we need bread ambassadors? And what is real bread versus fake bread. So I think I gave you about three questions there. (laughs) Choose whichever one you'd like. The Real Bread Campaign is a charitable organization Mm. and basically set up, well, for for various things. But one Mm -hmm. thing is, is that there is actually no legal definition as to what goes in your bread. Mm. So if you've ever read the packet on a bread that you buy in the supermarket, you'll be absolutely shocked by what's in it. Mm. And this has got worse with sourdough because sourdough should have three ingredients. So it's flour, water, salt. Yeah. And if you 
read again ingredients there's a lot of um, big companies that are coming on board and they're saying oh we've got this sourdough and, and you read the ingredients and it's got yeast in it it's got this that and the other mm. so there are actually 21 of us ambassadors and we're located all over the world and we really talk passionately mm. about real bread which is is bread without additives mm. and so yes it's very important Mm. So you said in a sourdough, it's going to be water, flour, and salt. And those yes. things will combine together, they'll ferment, and they'll create essentially a natural yeast is what's happening with sourdough, correct? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So you have something called a starter, it has various other names, but that's what you start off. And it takes yeast from the air, and it'll bubble. It takes about four days to make your very first one. And then after that, you have to feed it mm -hmm. when you want to use it. And then all you'd be doing is adding more flour and more water mm -hmm. and salt. You don't add salt to begin with to make the bread. I see. So just. I see. Yeah, the salt <laughs> would kill the yeast, I suppose, if you did that. Yes, huh? yes. Well, it slows it down. It slows okay. it down. You definitely need to have salt. Bread without salt tastes horrible, but also it actually won't work properly. It, it, it just never comes together. That's so interesting to me. Okay. So if those are the three things that you should see in any loaf of sourdough, and then of course, things like an herb or a seasoning oh, yeah. wouldn't be different, yes. but then what would be the ingredients that you would say are acceptable in a non-sour, in a yeasted bread, you know, in a sandwich bread that you would get from the grocery store? What would you say is acceptable well, ingredients? Again, you, you really only need very basic ingredients, mm -hmm. but of course you, you might have some oil or some butter mm. and some other flavorings, but it, it shouldn't have any chemicals in it at all. Mm -hmm. um, mo most of the things that are added are supposedly to improve the flour, but basically what it means is, is that it makes it quicker for the manufacturer to get the bread done okay, so they can okay. make bread in 40 minutes and it's why a lot of people think that they're gluten intolerant and they're probably not it just means they can't tolerate this so-called bread because it, it hasn't been made properly okay I'm a little speechless right now because you may have actually just answered a question that's been burning within me for yeah. years here because I have so many friends and I've interviewed so many guests who say, I can eat bread in my home country if they go back to a European country, for instance. I can eat bread in my home country, but I cannot eat American bread. And you would say it's this process that creates bread from, are you really saying from beginning to end, including baking in 40 minutes? Oh, yes. Yeah. Beginning to end, including baking yes. in 40 minutes. And particularly with sourdough is is that it um, there's all sorts of technical terms, but it kind of pre-digests things, which is it, oh, it's starting okay. the process that your stomach would be doing inside. So, so it's great because it's really good for you, but not having having all sorts of chemicals is not good for you. I see, I see. Okay, and then what about? I mean, I guess that's really interesting what you're saying that it these additives work to make the process quicker because what I always assumed is that additives work to preserve the bread longer and that there was kind of no getting around to it. Like you, you basically couldn't buy bread from the store if you weren't allowed to put preservatives in it. It just wouldn't be fresh. Well, you're right about that. There is, there, there are preservatives, but I'm, I'm guessing, you know, that, I mean, sourdough can last many days and it will get drier but, you know, you can still eat it many days later. You can slather fun. it with butter and pan toast it. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which is my favorite way to eat sourdough. <laughs> that is very interesting. Okay, so the rail, you said there's 18 of you? 21. 21 of you. Okay, and how are you appointed and who are you appointed by? Ah, well, Chris Young is the coordinator mm. and it was nearly two years ago he asked people to put themselves forward and say why we should be an ambassador and how we can help mm. because there the were some ambassadors that had been doing a fantastic job, but it was time for them to step down. Mm -hmm. So we had been lobbying Chris saying that there weren't enough women. Mm. So <laughs> we did manage to get more women involved and more people outside the UK as well. Okay. Okay. And there's no real defined job. It's just that as you go about your normal duties, I mean, you have a career working yeah. with bread. 
as you go about that, you're constantly talk about what real bread is and the benefits of real bread. Yes, yes. And obviously with students, you try and get that over to them as well. But I think a lot of them realize that already, actually, mm. that real bread is the, is the right thing. And that's why they've come to me to be taught. But uh, yes, that's what we do. Interesting. True. Interesting. Um, it's, it's in France where I trained, there is proper training for people. In the UK, you might be able to, when you're a young person, go and do a day release. Mm. But it's actually quite difficult for anyone who is older to go and do a course unless you've got a lot of money. Whereas in France, they've set up all sorts of places that you can go and retrain. So you might need a new career for whatever reason. Mm. And you can retrain and you can become a baker. Because in France, you have to have a qualification to actually open a bakery. You can't just say, I want to open one. Mm-hmm. You have to have the certificate. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. There's Which a of- lot that needs to be done in the UK to get to that level, really. Right. And of course, that has pros and cons. It's pros for healthy bread. It's pros for conserving tradition. It's pros in a lot of ways like that. But it also means there's a very high barrier of entry for yeah. people who want to start a new business as a baker. Yes, that's true. But um, the way it works in France is that the millers of the flour actually help a lot so that they will sometimes lend you money to set up your bakery. They will support you with marketing advice, training, all sorts. So it it is a, a very different model. So a very lot of different can get into it, you know, with, with some help. Very different. Yes. And it's, it's a total paradigm shift, I would say, for one aspect of the industry to be related to the other aspect of the yes. industry. So for the people growing and milling, maybe those aren't even the same two people, the growers and the millers. No, they tend to be different, but they're different. Yes, okay. It's all a lot closer. Yes. Yes. So interesting. Okay. Well, we may return to this as we go back to your training, but let's stay for a second with what you're doing now, which is, it makes me nervous <laughs> just thinking about it, that you judge the world bread competitions. So <laughs> the world bread awards mm. and normally it happens every year mm-hmm. and people who are professional and amateurs are asked to send their breads in and there are various categories and they literally do send them in by courier. So they all arrive in London on a particular day. Oh my. And the judges arrive. There's usually at least 600 loaves to judge, but there are 600. Yes, but there are 60 judges. How many? 60. 60. Okay, so 10 loaves of bread each. Yes, although you, you always work in pairs, it's all it's incredibly fair. You have no idea who's anybody's is, mm, mm-hmm. and so you work work together. And then there's somebody senior to you that does a sanity check to make sure that you're doing everything correct as well. So it, it's it's an amazing thing. That but is I amazing. Think, so what categories might you have? Well, sourdough's the biggest usually, mm-hmm. but there might be baguettes. Uh, there is a category for gluten free baking. Okay. And flavoured bread, so, you know, a a sweet one, sweet dough. Mm -hmm. There's probably about 10 different categories. Amazing, amazing. So how, speaking of preservatives, how do people, these literally are coming from around the world, right? This isn't just a UK thing. No, the UK. Oh, has their own. It just comes from the UK, but there is now an American version, which people have to get their bread to New York. Right. Well, so, so still, right? You're going across yeah. the country, you know, how do they stay? How long would you say a good loaf of bread can stay fresh? And how would they keep it fresh oh. for you guys? People were sending it the day before. So it's really just like getting an Amazon package, to be honest, <laughs> I mean, pre- premium delivery. So it, there really should be no problem. Okay. For it arriving the next day. I mean, you're not, you haven't got cream in it, for instance, that fresh cream that's whipped mm-hmm. or whatever. Right. So you could be fine. Right. There really isn't much that could go wrong, really. <laughs> I see. Okay. I got it. So now you said that sourdough is the biggest uh, category. Yes. It's almost become a joke how much, <laughs> <laughs> right? That sourdough has become such a trend during COVID. Would you say that? sourdough was already gaining in popularity have you seen an increase in sourdough bread making since COVID started I think it's something that suddenly people thought oh I've got time to do this Mm -hmm. 
And uh, I saw quite a number of people who contacted me saying, I've started making sourdough. I've got this new business. I'm selling it to my neighbors. Mm-hmm. And really, I did want them to succeed. But unfortunately, it uh, quite a number didn't because they really didn't understand quite how to market it, perhaps, or mm-hmm. the amount of work it needed, or just really having experience to make more than one type of bread. Mm-hmm. So that was the people who were thinking about businesses. Other people did have time, so they just had a go, and, and there seemed to be some good results. I don't know that it's quite as popular now. I think it's died down a bit. <laughs> yes, count count us in that. My oldest started us. You know, he made a starter, he made a couple loaves, and then eh, he got preoccupied. (laughs) And I said, throw that thing out from my cabinet. (laughs) Also, I think if you are lucky enough to live near a good bakery, Mm. why not go to the good bakery and support them? Mm -hmm. Which is great. But I Mm. think also maybe it's made people appreciate how much work it does go into making a good loaf of bread. Mm, Right. And (laughs) Yeah, this is a question that I had for you when we were talking earlier about the preservatives and the grocery store and, of course, how differently they do things in France. Do you think that that's something that is attainable for just a normal everyday household to make their own bread? Or do you think that there really needs to be a commitment there and a kind of extra reason to make it at home besides just buying it at the store or at a good bakery? Well, I definitely think it's worth doing it at home. And and there are, are people who do that all the time. But what you need to learn is how to fit it into your day. So it's it's not going to take over. Mm. As one of my teachers always used to say, show the dough who's boss. It's you that's <laughs> deciding what the dough needs, not the dough dictating mm. your life. Mm. So a lot of the techniques I learned in France means that you could, well, I've just been teaching somebody just now making baguettes. So he started at half past five. It's, it's going to go in the fridge overnight and he's going to finish it tomorrow. So okay. It's easy. I think you're exactly right that it's the management that's the issue. And when we get to the end, and I talked to you about these savory, savory <laughs> share and tear rolls, it's yeah. exactly what happened to me. I kind of made it, but then I didn't have the yeast. So I, well, I didn't make it, but I measured out the ingredients, realized I didn't have the yeast by the time I came back. I had to let it rise for an hour, but I was exhausted. So I said to my one of my kids, can you put it in the fridge? Of course, they didn't. It overproved. You know, it's just like you said, I, I was running circles. Well, the dough was running circles around me. It was bossing me. Let's put it that way for yes. sure. So that's really, that's very interesting. Well, let's talk a little bit about teaching. And obviously, I would need lessons because I'm, like I said, terrible at bread. And this is a perfect example. So who do you teach? And what are they hoping to learn from you? I'm going to slightly answer that slightly differently. Sure. So before COVID, I would have done classes in person and they would come to me and there'd be a group of five or six people. Okay. And there would be very much people, obviously, in the local-ish area. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I had to do some marketing and word of mouth and et cetera. Mm. When COVID happened, I was... To start with, I was thinking, well, okay, now what do I do? And there were lots of people giving free classes online in any subject, which I'm sure you know. Yes. And I thought, well, I, I can't compete with that. So what what could I do? And I thought, well, if I do a one-to-one class, and sometimes it's two people, but say one-to-one class, mm-hmm. I can completely tailor it to what they need. Mm-hmm. So the sort of people I teach are, are sometimes they've been given a voucher, Mm-hmm. And sometimes they've done some baking and it hasn't gone quite well. Sometimes they're complete beginners. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they have a new bread oven called a, a Rofco, which I've got one of. Mm, what is and that? It, a Rofco is a bread oven. It's about the size of a washing machine, but it can bake up to 12 loaves. And wow. uh, so, yeah. So it's, it can be any number of those things. So I have a newsletter, which so I started there, I think, can't mm. remember exactly. But anyway, started mentioning that I was doing this. Mm-hmm. And it did surprise me <laughs> how people managed to find me because I've been teaching people all over the world. So mm. people in the, in the States and Singapore 
and Spain. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And how do you figure out what it is? You said you can tailor it exactly to them. Do you just have yes. them complete a questionnaire? How do you go about doing that? So usually we have a, a, a short Zoom chat. I find it's really nice to actually see that person mm-hmm. and you can really kind of understand where they are. So I can ask mm. them several questions and we, we spend about 10 minutes and then I can tell very much what they need or mm. where they want to start. And I make a proposal and I say, well, okay, if you want to do baguettes, we're going to need to do that in three stages or sourdough, it's more stages. And then agree with them, you know, can they dedicate the time? Can they afford it? Mm. Um, how does that fit into their schedule? Mm-hmm. So I, I do work probably every day, but not not all the time, if you know what right. I mean. Right. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that's a great, that's great that you do so much. I used to be a wedding photographer and so much of the work was figuring out, making sure that you and the client were the right fit, yes. you know, asking yes. all those questions. And it sounds like you're a complete expert in that, which is not at all a surprise given your prior career. <laughs> well, I, I think what it is, is having that wonderful base, my training, so I am completely confident in what I'm doing. Mm. And I think you're the same with your wedding photography. You knew exactly what you were doing and you knew which clients would be best to work with. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. As long as you've got that, oh, I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. It's fine. <laughs> right, right. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. I just Let's just talk about marketing in general, because that is what your previous career was, right? Yes. I started in marketing a long time ago and worked in various different industries Mm. but it really was why I started the blog because I got to the stage that I'd done traditional marketing so you weren't using anything online in particular Mm -hmm. and I needed to learn how to do that Mm -hmm. and I thought well okay how do I start and I thought well a a blog would be interesting Mm -hmm. what shall I write about oh food (laughs) (laughs) that's what every blog is about (laughs) absolutely So I was in Edinburgh at the time and there was a most wonderful group called the Edinburgh Coffee Morning, which was nothing to do with coffee or women necessarily. And there was a lot of guys who had expertise in digital marketing who were very happy to sit and chat and share their knowledge. Mm. So I used to go along there every week and it was absolutely wonderful, a really superb group of people. Mm. So I learned a huge amount. So not only did it help my marketing career at the time, but I, I wrote the blog and that's, that's where that started. So the blog was the bridge between your marketing career and your bread career. Yeah, I think so. I really. didn't realize I'd, that. I'd always, I'd always made bread. Mm-hmm. When I first met my husband, he shared a house with two other guys. Mm-hmm. And one of them was what he would describe himself as a mad Scotsman. And <laughs> every weekend he would actually make bread and he was the one who taught me and um, it was strange really because I learned how to do how he did bread Mm. but I never thought about well is this the right way to make bread or Mm. is there a different way and Mm -hmm. it actually took me quite a while to think oh I'm getting a bit bored with making bread this way is there Mm. something else I can do Mm. but it was down to him that set me off. Interesting okay so no one in your childhood it wasn't like you would come home from school and walk into the house full of the warm smell of bread and I don't think when I was that age that people made bread very much themselves I mean my family loved France and we would go to France a lot and we'd always obviously go and buy a baguette or whatever yes no I don't I don't think I knew anybody who made bread when Mm -hmm. I was younger at all Mm. the foundation was really loving France Yes, yes, mm. absolutely. Yeah. Can you tell me about some of your early memories of France? Why did you guys go there so much? What did you love uh, about it? Well, I'll tell you one f- funny one, I, I think. And I was I was 11 and I we actually learned some French at school and they decided to take us on a trip to, mm-hmm. to Paris. And we were in a school and in a big hall and this is our first breakfast and everybody was sort of sitting chatting together and everything else and these this stuff came out in small white jars mm-hmm. and somebody was brave enough to taste it mm-hmm. and then everybody was going <laughs> and uh, it turned out to be plain yogurt 
Oh, really? And, and at that time, nobody had tasted yogurt much at all. And and when somebody <laughs> added some sugar, we thought, oh, that's great. But that <laughs> it's, was kind it's, of... Yeah, it's a very surprising flavor if it's so yeah, completely plain and you're not used to it. Yeah. So why did we go to France? I don't really know why I went to France a lot, but we tended to every it- year drive there because I was near enough to to go on the, the ferry and okay. then to drive to France mm. and go to different places. Mm. And most years, I suppose I've done that ever since. It's hardly ever a year when I've missed it. Every year, almost every year you've been to France. Yeah. And I, oh. and I had a most wonderful teacher called Mr. Fleming mm-hmm. when I was at secondary school, which is from when you're about 11. Mm-hmm. And he just encouraged me and he really instilled the love of speaking French to me. Mm. And you know, it's, it's never gone. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. So you learned French in, in the UK. Yes. But then that just made you all the closer to the culture because when you went, yes. you could start to get to know people more and more intimately. And Yes. Mm. And then I, I went as an au pair one summer mm. and it was friends of my mother's. Well, my mother had a French friend and it was friends of theirs. Mm-hmm. And I really fell on my feet because they were quite a moneyed family in Paris Mm. And my job was to look after an 11-year-old girl, which was not exactly difficult. <laughs> <laughs> um, her name was Sophie, and my daughter's name is Sophie. I was going to say how very French. <laughs> but that was lovely because they, they didn't speak any English to me at all. Wow. I thought they couldn't. And it was only when I went to visit them the following year with my mother, that I found that it spoke perfect English. <laughs> oh, no, Really? That's funny. That's so funny. They never let on. No, but you see, that is the best way. Yes, yes. But I can just imagine the look on your face, how your jaw must have dropped when you heard them start (laughs) speaking to your mother. That's incredible. That's just incredible. Mm. And while you were an au pair, you must have had plenty of time to just travel around. Well, no, because it was only over the summer. So it was six weeks or something like that. Okay. So we started off in Paris and then we went down to near Saint-Tropez, would you believe? So I was treated very much like an extra daughter in the family. So I I was very lucky. Oh, that's wonderful. And is it true that in France, they buy fresh bread every day? And was that part of your memory of it? Oh, yes, definitely. Oh, three times a day. Oh, (laughs) Oh, <laughs> you just hop by. My kids make fun of me for going to the grocery store almost every day, but they'll stop by the bakery three times a day, huh? A real baguette should be eaten within three hours of it being made. Oh, my. Wow. So that's why you might go three times a day. Mm, that's amazing. Mm. <laughs> so I, after I'd done my training, I actually went to work for a while with my tutor who had then opened his own bakery and you'd be seeing the same people. So you would be behind the counter or in the, in the, where you're making bread and you'd say, Oh yeah, there's this so-and-so again, again. Oh, Oh, so, um, so small town and intimate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. You yes. really got to know one another and feel like, I think it's important for your work to feel connected to people and they oh, must yeah. have felt that. And then you felt connected. Yes, definitely. You said you had learned from your husband's roommate, the mad Scotsman, (laughs) and that you made bread for years and years, and you went to a class, and you said you realized you had been doing it all wrong, which seems impossible, because if you were eating bread, it couldn't have been all wrong. So tell me about that. There's a baker called Richard Bertonet, who happens to be French, who's very well known in the UK. And I got to the stage where I thought, oh, I'd like to make croissants. I can I can make bread. Let's go and make croissant. And he's located in Bath, which is in the southwest of mm-hmm. England. It's a beautiful place. Mm. And part of the making the croissant was actually kneading the dough. Mm-hmm. And he demonstrated a completely different way of of kneading the dough, which I now know is is a French way of doing it. Mm. So instead of squashing the air out, you're actually mm-hmm. getting more air in. So huh. the exact opposite. How do you do that? Um, it's a bit difficult. I was going to say, it's probably difficult to explain. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you, you, if you do it by hand, you sort of pick it up and slap it and fold it over. And you wouldn't even just say it's an alternate way. You would say it's 
the superior way. Well, I suppose I would say superior, but no, it's an alternate way. I mean, it's I do an, say okay. to people who who learn with me that, look, I'm going to show you how to do it. But if you're used to doing needing some other way, please don't feel you have to do it this mm. way. You know, at least you can I can show you. Mm. So we, we don't ever do any knocking back, which is probably this expression that you've heard mm. of knocking the air out. Yeah. Everything to keep the air in. Right. Yeah. You don't pick it up and slap it on the table. (laughs) No, not unless you're feeling very cross with somebody. (laughs) (laughs) And then it sounds like he must have been quite the expert and it was really an investment to take another class from him. Yeah. What I liked was, and I'm sure you've done the same, is that sometimes Mm -hmm. you've been on classes and it's been fun, but it's been very lightweight Mm -hmm. and it's been you know, just just fun not mm-hmm. not really that you've learned a huge amount yeah it's Whereas frivolous I yeah. found with him he was quite strict and oh, okay in a nice way but you know he was determined you were going to get this technique mm. so you know he would say you know keep going keep going or or, or whatever mm. and I really liked that because I wanted to learn I didn't want to go just to have fun for an afternoon right you already knew how to make bread for fun yeah, absolutely. Right. So did you end up with a perfect croissant at the end of the class? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think that took me to go to France to do that. I mean, it was edible, but mm. croissants are not that easy, really. So it was this guy. I think you said his name was Richard Burton. Did I have that wrong? Bert- Bertonet. Bertonet. Okay. I think Richard Burton's an American actor, actually. So <laughs> Richard Bertonet, you followed him to France to take a more intense class. No, no, no. No. I- he has a baking school in Bath. Mm. So what I did was uh, I had done that one day, which was a croissant one. Mm. So I then saved up and then I did five days with him. Mm-hmm. So it was still in the UK at that time. So then what happened to get you from there to well, France? I think it had, I got really enthused about it. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, what do I do next? Because how do I get more experience? Mm-hmm. And I started looking around in the UK. And as I was saying, there was, there's nothing, there was certainly mm-hmm. nothing at the time. There is now the school of artisan food that does um, some courses. Mm. There's lots of just one day courses, but nothing that I could do because I couldn't do day release, which is mm-hmm. when you go once a week. So I was still living in Edinburgh and speaking to a French baker I knew who had her own bakery and um, she said, well, did you realize until eight years ago, I was, I was, I was a scientist. Mm. I went back to France and I did one of the conversion courses to change my career. I, oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> and A world um, of possibilities opened up to you. Well, it did because mm. when I started looking, obviously I needed to be able to do it in French. Mm-hmm. There's no way that can you go and speak English and do these courses. Okay. So luckily I'm, I speak French well enough mm-hmm. but I, I did have to go and have a test at the French Institute to see really? whether I a certain level or not oh wow so that, that was quite fun so I started applying to various places but then in the meantime she said oh Banette who I get my flower from are opening up their course which is usually for only for French people opening their own bakeries to foreigners mm. maybe you should get in touch so I did. And long story short, I ended up going to this particular class, which is normally for professional bakers. Wow. So you've had all of the same training as a professional French baker. That's right. Yes. That's incredible. But before incredible. I got there, mm-hmm. to put a little bit in the story is that Please. I don't know if you've heard of WOOF, which is something like Worldwide Workers on Organic Farms. And it's a place that you can go and volunteer for a few weeks Mm. And you can do things like grape picking or um, help on the farm or Mm. anything. Mm -hmm. And I actually found a a bakery in in Normandy and spent two weeks there. Oh, wow. That was such an eye opener because when I got there, I discovered that everything was baked on a wood fire and they had no electric machinery. So you had to bake or make bread in 25 kilo batches in a wooden trough. Oh my word, 25 kilos. Now let me think about that. It's 2.2 pounds. Even 50 pounds, if you think of it, even that it's more, more 56 pounds, I think. What do you use, a Um, paddle to mix it? No, you use your arms. (laughs) You use your arms. 
Yeah. Did you come so home that, sore every night taking an well, ibuprofen <laughs> or did you learn techniques? No, no because it, in fact, it's easier than you think because the, the weight of the dough actually Mm. It moves itself in the end. Yes, yes, yes. It, I see that now. Okay, I can imagine so I, that. I, I did this because I wanted to see whether I felt I was physically strong enough yeah. to do any more. Yeah. And that that proved to me that I could. Yes, right. So at that point, you left your career. You had already left marketing. Or is that when um, you did it? No, not not when I'd done the two weeks. I mean, that was, I, I can't remember exactly the time scale, but I was still working in marketing and I did the two weeks, you know, just like you'd go on vacation for two weeks mm-hmm, and right. then came back. And then I was still looking to see where all the courses were. Okay. And then at a certain point I left, yes. <laughs> yeah. When you went to France, you had officially wrapped it up by then and you were, you know, eyes forward down a different path. Yeah. Amazing. Yes. I'm wondering if you have one or two key things about baking that you learned while you were in France, but also maybe one or two things you learned about, again, I feel like it was quite brave for you to say, you know, I've had this successful career in marketing for decades, I take it, Mm. and I'm going to be done. The balance is, is that I've always wanted to live in France which I'd never, apart from being a no pair, I'd never lived in France. Mm. So that was a huge incentive. <laughs> mm. So it wasn't, um, it was it intimidating? Oh, yes. But I, I mean, I left my husband behind. Yes. Um, and also there aren't that many women training as bakers. Oh. In France, the women are usually the front of house. So they're the people who's in charge mm-hmm. of the sales. So there's all sorts of things that were kind of against me and my age. So I wasn't, there were, a lot of them were younger than me, but it was wonderful because can you imagine doing a course? You're starting off early, fair enough, but you stop at midday for a three course lunch. <laughs> that does sound ideal. <laughs> and then you get back to work again. <laughs> oh, so you made the best of it and you must have gotten to know your classmates well. Oh, yes. I mean, mm. it's. I started tutoring my tutor's son, my professor's son, and two other children of the teachers. So that was something also that I wasn't sure about because I hadn't taught children before. But that was also a way of of getting to know people better. And I really enjoyed doing that in the end. (laughs) Mm, Yes. So you wouldn't say that you have necessarily any words of wisdom or anything. It was simply you, you weighed the pros and cons and you said, well, this is something I'm going to want to do. Yes. I mean, I suppose it's words of wisdom. Do you mean from the point of view that you should always go and try and do something? Yes, Mm. I think so. Be brave from that point of view. But I guess, you know, sort of lots of things that you you know, that you love the subject and you love the place and it's Mm -hmm. an opportunity to do this, that, and the other. I mean, there were days when I was was crying because when you speak a different language, it kind of fills your brain up. Mm. And by the end of the day, you think, I can't push any more in. Mm. It's like a bucket that was mm. overflowing. And then you had to come home and you did homework. Oh. And there's mm. quite a lot which is really quite numerical and technical, which I hadn't done for so long. And there I was, you know, my brain full of this stuff and then trying to do my planning for the next day. And, mm. yeah, I can remember ringing up my daughter and saying, oh. Oh. but, you know, I got through it and it got better and better and in its, its confidence and mm. all sorts. But, mm-hmm. yeah, it was very hard at times. It sounds very hard. It sounds very hard, but it's very, you know, inspiring, of course, that you did that, that you, it it is true. I mean, it's, (laughs) it's a cliche, but you know, things that are worth doing are usually not the easiest things. And it it was 670 hours of training. 670 hours. (laughs) Wow. Wow. So how many weeks was that? It was four months, but there was a month in the middle where um, I came home and did some work experience, which was allowed that I could do that. Okay. And that ties into the tear and share, but I can tell you that bit a bit later. (laughs) Well, let's talk about that. So you did this, you came home, and then 
in some ways for me, I'm wondering if it was almost like, okay, well, that was the easy part. You know, amassing the knowledge is the easy part. Now you had to go out and build something completely new. You had to build a new career with this knowledge. And that maybe is an even harder part. What would you say? Yes, because it didn't really quite work out as I hoped because I did. When I came back, I did a lot of work experience with, with quite a number of bakeries. But the type of bakery that makes great bread in, in Britain in general is very small. Mm. It's, it's changing now. Mm. But there were no spare spaces for a new person to go and work for the people. Mm-hmm. That was the trouble. So somebody you could go and get experience, but then there wouldn't be a job. I see. So it's really why I started teaching rather than running a bakery. Right. I see. And then tell me about the blog, Edinburgh Foodie, which started about that time. And you think, I think you grew. No, no, it didn't start then. It started way before that was, that was the blog that started so that I was, when I was doing digital marketing. I see. And had it already grown at that point? Okay. Yeah. So when I went to France, there was not just me, but there were three other people helping. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) Edinburgh is a, a place full of restaurants. I, I think there's supposed to be three more restaurants per head than anywhere else in Britain. Oh, wow. So at that time, there weren't so many blogs. Mm-hmm. And the restaurants were very keen for us to go and review restaurants. <laughs> I see. Such a hard thing to do. Because we all had different tastes. Oh, okay. One girl, woman, went off and did the the more things like burgers and things like that because mm-hmm. she liked it yeah um, that would be me I'd be out there tasting the onion rings <laughs> we split it all out we, we did we, we had some amazing experiences it was mm-hmm. but it was of, of its time and that's what was going on at the time so we learned a lot and sometimes if we did go to a restaurant that was not very good we would not write it up that was that was our policy we never okay. You wouldn't write a bad review. You would just decline to write one. There's no point. I mean, we, we would feed back and sometimes the restaurant didn't like that, that we fed it back. But then other times they said, oh, well, you know, we really appreciate you've said that and perhaps you'd come back again. And Mm. so it it was interesting. And that (laughs) was was on top of a day job as well that we were doing. Right. Okay. And so I'm sorry, this is a basic question, but do you live in Scotland? I used to. You did at the time. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, so you're I've, okay. I've been in the southwest of England in Gloucestershire now for four years. Okay. So, so the time scale was is it was 2014. I did my training, mm-hmm. and then I went back to Edinburgh, and then four years ago we moved here. Okay. Okay. So you spent two more years working on the blog and growing. Well, really doing. Essentially, here in the U.S., we'd call them internships for those two years. No, I did all sorts of things. So I did start doing some teaching. I Mm -hmm. also did some marketing again so I could earn some money. Yeah. (laughs) All sorts of things. Okay. So, yes. Okay. Um, Was the blog profitable or a grown um, large? It wasn't profitable, I see. No, but then we got so much out of it. I mean, we we let out you know, every week. So, I mean, that's a huge value and (laughs) meeting some of the most amazing chefs and and people. Absolutely. Yes. And you were immersing yourself in the world that you wanted to move and move more into. Yeah. 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 It's true. Okay. So let's talk about this recipe, this savory share and tear that I royally messed up. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Um, well, it was delicious anyways. It just looked terrible. And I know that I can do better. So so tell me, first of all, is there a story to that? Why did you choose that there, one? There is, there is a story. So when I, I did my four months, but in the middle of that, I, I came back to Edinburgh mm-hmm. and did some work experience. And I was supposed to be working with uh, in one particular bakery and they let me down at the last minute. So mm-hmm. I had to ask around you know, is, is there anywhere I can go and do some training? Because this is to pass your course, you had to have evidence that you've done some work experience. And I ended up in a most wonderful wholesale bakery. Mm-hmm. So they were providing a lot of quite well-known places all over the city and further afield. Mm-hmm. And the man who ran it had been in the business for, I think, 50 years at the time. Wow. But he was so good at explaining everything and 
could see my enthusiasm and, and taught me all sorts of different things. So it was a, a different experience. So I was learning different things, but he taught me how to make one version of this tear and share bread, which I then took back to France. Mm -hmm. And there was one lady who worked in the kitchen making these wonderful lunches that we had, mm -hmm. who I got friendly with. Mm -hmm. And her husband was rather poorly and I never met him. Mm. And I made her a version oh. of this. She took it home to him and he said it was the best thing he'd ever tasted. Oh. So oh. from that point on, whenever I could, I, I made him another one. Oh. So, but I never met him. But she was the most wonderful lady anyway. So, mm. Mm. Well, that is a lovely story. And let's talk about how I can get it to the most wonderful thing any of us have ever eaten. I mean, listen, we were all tearing and sharing it already. <laughs> Well, as long as it tastes all right, it doesn't really doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, tell me a little bit about this idea of being the boss of your dough, because is it just a matter of planning ahead through your day and saying, well, if I want to do this now, I have to start, you know, working backwards? Yeah. Yes, in extent. And, and you were so right about putting it in the fridge at that point, because it, if it had gone in the fridge, you would have found it was absolutely fine. Yes. Yeah, so uh, this is a question I just have all the time. You've mixed your bread and it has to prove once, then you shape it. You have to prove it a second time. At what point in that process can you put it in the fridge? Like if I had just made the dough and put it in the fridge, would that have been okay? Or did I have to let it prove first? Well, I guess there's certain other things that you have to think of. So okay. when you're kneading your dough or, mm -hmm. or using a machine, which is no reason why you can't use a a kitchen aid or, or whatever mm -hmm. your dough needs to get to oh I don't know what this is in Fahrenheit 24 to 26 degrees mm -hmm. so that's going to be about 80 isn't it yeah between 75 and 80 so warmer than room temperature in yes. my house at the moment yeah absolutely so even going back even further is that when you're adding water to your flour, you probably have heard people say, oh, you need warm water or tepid water or whatever, mm -hmm. don't they? Mm -hmm. You actually need to work out what the precise temperature is that you need. I thought this was so interesting in your recipe. You put yeah. the, in Celsius. What is it in Celsius? It's 24 to 26. So 24. we've got 25 to, to 80 degrees, isn't it? Right. Well, what you had in the recipe was actually 68 for the water. It says this water should be around 20 degrees Celsius. This will feel cooler than you would imagine, which is about 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Yeah. So... I wasn't going into the whole process of this now, but I'll just finish telling you anyway. Yeah. So what you do is that you add up the temperature that you've got in the room mm. and the temperature of your flour. Oh, We'll have to do this in Celsius, I'm afraid. That's fine. And then you take it away from something that's called a base temperature, which is 60. That number doesn't change. The base doesn't change. No. So you can imagine that- I'm sure in the summer it was really hot where you were. It was hot for us here. So it was 30 degrees, which is like 85 or something like that. Yes, exactly. So it means that you'd end up that your water has to be really, really cold. Really? And that won't... That, okay. So then when you mix, when you've mixed it, when you needed it, it will come to that 24 to 26. Okay. Even if it's cooler than that in the house, if you put your water in at the correct temperature, it'll be okay. Yes, that's right. And so mm -hmm. there's none of this needing to put it in the boiler room or somewhere hot or whatever mm -hmm. else. You don't need to do that at all. You've done yeah. this mixing and you've got your dough to that temperature. If you put it in the fridge, it will still rise. That is so interesting. And it's not a problem for it to just rise overnight or do I have to punch it down after an hour? In various cases, when like when you're making sourdough, you fold it so it kind of mm -hmm. deflates a bit. Mm -hmm. But the actual practice of it is that you just put it in, in the fridge. I mean, it, and it's fine until the next morning. Okay. It just means that you're controlling it. You're saying, look, I've not got much time now. I can spend 15 minutes mixing it. I'm going to leave it out for an hour say, depending on what the recipe is, then I'm going to put it in the fridge and I'm going to deal with it tomorrow morning. 
That is so interesting. Okay. But if you do now overproving is a thing. So for instance, that did actually happen to me, right? I'm not wrong on that because I left it out at room temperature. So it did overrise. Yes. Yeah. It probably got to the stage I'm, I'm guessing, but it was, it was probably doing its best and thinking, Oh yeah, I'm happy. And, and, mm-hmm. and getting to the mm-hmm. stage where, Oh, I, I need baking now, but then because you weren't around. It, <laughs> I neglected it. <laughs> it just ran out of steam. So that's basically yeah. all overproving is really yeah. running out of steam. <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly what happened. So, I mean, you know, when I rolled them up and cut them and all that, they grew nicely while I waited 45 minutes, you know, for the oven to yeah. warm, but then they just didn't do much in the oven and they were kind of, they, they just weren't like plump and inviting looking. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. Good, but just not plump and inviting looking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So my other question about this is you gave three different ways that you can do it. So you can, you know, so they form spirals. So to people listening, they form spirals like a cinnamon roll. So you can put the spirals in the shape of a Christmas tree, which was cute, and cut out a star, a dough star to put on the top. Or you can put them in a, you know, like you would serve cinnamon rolls and, you know, a nine by 13 Pyrex or something like that. Or you can kind of stack them and put them in a tin you know, like you would make a quick bread in a banana bread or I, any kind of bread. And, and I guess I'm just wondering, they seem to me, it just seems like one would work or the other, because you just couldn't cook it all the way through in the tin. If it's a recipe that's made for baking flat. It's really because you've actually got the rolls that you've, you've cut them up. Okay. So that um, what they're doing, because when, if you can imagine, if you're putting them in a tin, it, there's going to be air pockets, isn't there, mm-hmm. to start with anyway. They're, they're not going to exactly, you're not going to squash them. Mm-hmm. So you, you're going to place them in there. And as they rise, it fills up. Okay. And then they'll cook. They'll cook evenly. Okay. But it'll take a little more time to cook or no? Not a huge amount, but yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. I'm going to try it that way. The next time I make them, I'm going to try it that way. That's so Good. interesting. I do. I do hope you'll try it again. <laughs> oh, 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 oh! I well, you know, I have to photograph them. That's what I do. So I have okay. to make it work. <laughs> I have to. I have to. You know, the croissants. If I fail on that one, I could always go buy them at the store or something and fake <laughs> it like I made them. But nobody's oh. making pesto sh- savory share and tear bread around here. So <laughs> it's one so, of those things that everybody loves the flavor, and 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 if there's oh. any things that you love at home you you just put them in you you don't it's very adaptable yes and it's really actually a pretty easy thing to do if you know i didn't mess it up <laughs> if i didn't get my timing wrong so well i have just one kind of fun question to ask before i ask every, you to share how listeners can find you which is i'm curious had you heard of paul hollywood before the great british bake off like, is he a, a bread legend in the UK? No. No? Okay. <laughs> it, it's it's a difficult answer because if you asked most bakers what they think of him, you would be interested. <laughs> I, I really, really, really have been wanting to ask that as soon as I started writing up these questions is, and then when you started talking about the dough, uh, the kneading, the kneading technique and everything, some would say he doesn't have the bona fide credentials. He he definitely does. I mean, he, okay. he he bakes and things, but he does things such as the way we were taught that if you're making your bread and you've weighed all the ingredients, you don't add loads of extra flour because you've just spent all the time weighing the ingredients. Mm-hmm. And he will f- throw an awful lot of flour over everything. Mm-hmm. And most bakers will sit there and cringe. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this then. If someone wants to learn to make bread, how would you say that they should, I mean, would you say buy a Paul Hollywood book or would you say do something else? (laughs) Well, obviously they need to do a class with me, don't they? (laughs) That's what I thought. (laughs) Um, um, Richard Bertinet has actually written three books now and his books are amazing. They are definitely a really good book to start with. Um, There's one called Dough, one called crust and one called crumb. Uh, Dough is the one you need to start with. That's the the first one. 
That's really helpful to know. Okay. And then tell everyone about your classes and how they can find you. So I'm Bread Baker Danny, which is D-A-N-I on Twitter and Instagram. So that's probably the easiest way. Mm-hmm. My blog is called Seven Bites, which is because I'm near the River Seven, which is spelled S-E-V-E-R-N, mm-hmm. B-I-T-E-S. So Seven Bites. What I've got there is a really great resource called Bake Bread Better Bread. And so it's got all of, a lot of these tips that I've actually been telling you already mm-hmm. written up on there. Beautiful. Um, you can sign up for a newsletter, uh, et cetera. Okay. Uh, but just, you know, send me a message. Be great. Thank yes. Yes. To have completely customized, completely customized bread baking lessons. And you mentioned that some of the people that you worked with didn't know what it would take to start a bakery. Do you include that kind of teaching in your classes, like, you know, marketing tips and on what it would take to start a business? Or do you just do purely making bread? It's more about how they would go from making a couple of loaves to making 12 loaves. Oh, scaling. It's more Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And then, like you said, the variety. So not just making sourdough, but making maybe six different kinds of bread. The other thing is, is that unfortunately, most people follow, oh goodness, I've gone and forgotten his name, Tartine Bakery. Mm -hmm. They follow his recipe to the letter Uh and it really doesn't lend itself to commercial practices, let's say. And in fact, if you read his book, He's not actually telling you that you have to do it this way. He's saying, this is what I suggest. And he even gives some examples of people who've adapted it. But unfortunately, most people go and say, right, okay, that's, I'm doing that. Yeah, it worked for him. (laughs) It's going to work for me. Yes. And that's never, ever the case. No. So that's what I have to kind of undo. And then I guess it's whether the people are actually open to a different way of doing things which most people are but it is really quite different yeah so you know I I guess it's taking that scary step for them that oh well I've been doing tartine bread you know for two or three and it's fine but how do I actually scale up I see well it just sounds like you offer so much value that I (laughs) I do want my listener well I do want my listeners to know that that you know you can teach them if they're just a, you know, a novice or a hobbyist baker, you can teach them. But if they have their sights on doing something new or something professional, you have more value to offer them as well. And these experience, a lot of experience, one in marketing across many fields, but also working in many, many bakeries, some, like you said, successful and some that it just didn't go very well, which (laughs) I think we all know you learn as much through that, right? Absolutely. But I think it's really encouraging that in America that you're beginning to use metric measurements or weights. I know. More than cups because uh, somebody said, can I teach them in cups? And I said, no, No. I can't. (laughs) Yes, yes. There isn't the right equivalent. So that really pleases me. And I I promise that if anybody from America comes to have a class, I will have my comparison chart. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's just a Google way anyhow. So, well, I just appreciate your time so much and I do appreciate your story and I really do appreciate this recipe. I promise it's going to be beautiful (laughs) by the time I make it to photograph and we're going to love it. So I have a feeling it'll become a classic for our household as well. Thank you. That's wonderful. Well, I'm really enjoying your your podcast. So, you know, I will keep listening, of course. <laughs> Thank you. That means a lot to me. Thanks again to Danielle. If you are even the tiniest bit interested in taking her bread baking classes or, of course, trying some of her recipes, all of Danielle's contact information is on the storiedrecipe.com. Just go to the episodes tab, choose this episode, and you'll find everything you need including the recipe for these very delicious savory pesto share and tear rolls that we discussed. For all of you listeners, I want to just say two things I cannot say too often. First of all, 
Thank you so much for your support. The reaction, especially to last week's episode, reminded me once again that there is a purpose to this podcast that is beyond my control. I'm putting out these stories, and I find it absolutely beautiful the way that you, listeners, are each impacted differently by my guests and the connections you form with them. In order to continue to make this continue to happen, I'm very much asking for your support. If you enjoyed this episode, would you please share it with a friend or family member? And also consider going back and finding another episode that interests you. Listen to that. And finally, every single rate and review helps new people find this podcast, which in turn helps me create a sustainable way to share the stories of others in their own words and their own voices. Thank you and have a great week, my friends.